Pop a bottle of water. This is great stuff, isn't it? I, especially on the Day of Atonement. This is really great stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, Spiritual references to water or vessels for water occur very frequently throughout the Bible. In fact, references to water are second only to dirt in number. So it's, um, what, was, uh, was it Carl Fritz who was older than dirt? Okay, I don't know. Anyway, including references for water, seas, rivers, streams, springs, rains, mists, storms, fountains, cisterns, wells, uses a noun, vessels, pots, jars. Scripture cites 2,060 passages for water or water-containing objects. Today, I'd like to explore the significance of water in Scripture, but obviously, I can't read all of those Scriptures. We'd never, I wouldn't even have time to read them all, let alone uh, discuss any of them. So, I want to narrow the focus a bit. Notice that most of the references for sources of water are natural, allow natural access to water. But two of them, cisterns and wells, and fountains and, and partly as well, require human intervention for their creation. In a desert culture like in the Middle East, cisterns and wells were prized possessions, objects of contention over which battles were fought even. They contained this, this, this very precious liquid here, uh, so necessary for life. Um, Moreover, whoever controlled the well controlled the economy of the region since that culture was dependent upon animal labor and agriculture. So he who controls the well controls the economy and has the, the rest of the people in his hands. So I pondered what lessons might we learn uh, by considering wells and cisterns metaphorically. In Jungian archetypal psychology, water is uh, symbolic of spirituality and a life-sustaining force. Cisterns and wells are man-made devices for catching and storing this most precious liquid, but, and they're both reservoirs of life, but they function quite differently. Cisterns catch rainwater and, uh, fall, that falls from heaven as a gift from God. They are commonly made of wood, stone, galvanized steel, and are fed by collection areas such as the roof of a house, uh, gutter system or an alluvial plane and a trench system. These are passive systems that are dependent upon the weather and the reservoirs of whatever falls to earth catching the bounty of God. Now, many people today haven't seen cisterns. Uh, so uh, I want to show you some pictures of what cisterns actually look like. Okay? This one is one made of galvanized steel. And you notice this catches the rainwater that falls on the roof of the uh, building and the gutter system uh, transfers it in. There's an overflow type there as well. Now, Brian, okay, this one is made of concrete. And again, it catches the overflow from the uh, house itself. Okay? This one's made of wood. Uh, not a witch, cat burner, but it's made of wood. This one is the old, uh, for the steam locomotives, the water towers that were uh, there to fill the, replenish the steam. Because when you boil the steam in the locomotive, the steam evaporates and the water eventually runs away. You have to replenish the water for the water tower. So they were using these cisterns, okay? There's another picture of one, a little bit more rustic detail. This is a stone cistern here, um, and, and it goes down into a large underground area, which is the reservoir for the, the water. It's called rainwater. This one is actually a misbah, I think, uh, which is a bathing pool, uh, because they were used for ritual, cisterns were often used for ritualistic bathing. Can you hear me? 
Okay? No, this one is. This is out the door. The other one was just a receptacle. This is the one that's the misbah. Okay? The problem with all, all of these cisterns that we have here is that, thank you, uh, the problem with all of these cisterns is that uh, the water in it can become stagnant if there's not a way to drain the cistern out and uh, replenish or clean it, cleanse it out. Because they contain standing water, these can, contents can become stagnant over time and would not be suitable for drinking, although the water might still be good and acceptable for irrigation. Metaphorically, these systems become vessels for holding spirituality. What would be a vessel for holding spirituality? A formal religion. So this is a creation. Um, of human beings uh, for, um, but apparently God does not have all that high opinion of formal religions. Consider the systems that are described in Jeremiah 2 verses 5 through 13 and note the contrast with a fountain of living water as opposed to dead water, which is um, constantly being replenished and, and refreshed. Here in this passage, God has become irritated with Israel, shall we say, for their ingratitude and angered or hurt by the betrayal of him for other gods. We can even sense God's frustration with his people in the language that the prophet uses. Jeremiah 2, verses 5 through 13. Okay. Thus says the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone, uh, gone far from me, and have walked after vanity and have become vain? Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and through the shadow of death, through a land that no man has passed through, where no man can dwell. So here God is leading them all through this desert land and with no rain, no water in sight. And he's still leading them through it. But, and he's asking, where, where, why, have they, why have they forgotten me? And I brought you into a plentiful country, country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. And the pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after the things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will, plead, I will yet plead with you, says the Lord, and with your children's children I will plead. For pass over into the isles of Chittim, and see, send unto Kedar, and consider diligently if there be, be such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even when they're not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns, that, cannot hold, can, that can hold no water. Note, the, the cisterns that are here, not the brother, but the cistern. The cistern described here are broken cistern that can hold no water in verse 13. These are not natural reservoirs of life-giving water, but are man-made objects hewn out of stone with great effort to their own vanity. In other words, they have rejected God as a natural source of life, as a fountain of living water bubbling up, continually being replenished and refreshed for their own stagnant man-made religions that cannot hold any life, any spirit, any water at all. It's, they're like stone idols 
made to other gods that do not profit. I think the contrast is most apt. Indeed, throughout Scripture, fountains, in contrast to cisterns, are all, always described positively as a source of refreshment for the weary. They are artesian wells that bubble or access points for underground springs that restore life to desert land. For example, in his great love poem, The Song of Solomon, the preacher describes his love, his spouse, in terms of a benevolent fountain and the garden that it nourishes. Uh, Song of Solomon, verse 4, uh, or chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. A locked garden is my sister, my spouse. A rock heap, he, uh, a rock heap locked up. A fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates and with pleasant fruits and with henna and spikenard, with spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes and with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and springs from Lebanon. Now we might think of living waters as a New Testament concept, but it recurs several times in, in the Old Testament as well. And we see it embodied here in the Song of Solomon. We'll see it more emphatically um, stressed a little bit later. Metaphorically, a fountain is an inexhaustible wellspring of spirit bubbling up from within, bringing life and joy to all that it touches. It is the source of the river of life that flows out from Jerusalem during the millennium. Ultimately, it is Christ himself. Between these two extremes, though, of the spontaneous fountain that overflows with spirit and the labored passive receptacle of the cistern, it lies the well. Wells are extremely valuable, as I said, especially in a desert climate, where, but they're rather tricky. For often there are no indicators at the surface level that a stream of cold, fresh, clean water is flowing 50 to 100 feet below ground. Further, digging a well is an expensive process requiring many man hours of labor and many such efforts result only in dry wells. Steve, you know about dry wells, okay? Uh, also known as a hole in the ground. Um, however, m many such efforts result in only dry... All right, however, it, if it is successful, then it can pay for itself very, very quickly. Particularly, as I said, in an agrarian society in the desert where it's dependent upon irrigation for crops and animals for labor. Hence, the owner of a well controlled the economy of the entire region. The need for water and wells gave rise to many charlatans who claimed to have the gift of divination, also known as water witching in the southern United States, the mystical ability to locate these underground streams without any apparent indicators on the surface level. Okay, a little bit of personal revelation here. My father had that gift, and he passed it on to me. Um, <clears throat> this is how it works. Um, but my younger brothers did not receive it, as it turns out. Um, it's kind of amusing to, to watch. I think about this as one of my memories, one of the few memories I have from uh, childhood. Divination requires one to cut a forked branch called a divining rod from a sweet sap tree. A sweet trap tree is one that bears fruit. And, it, and to grip it tightly by the arms, holding the tip or the point up as you walk across the acreage. If he passes over an underground stream, then the tip of the fork will turn in his hand and point downward toward the underground stream. 
I remember when Dad first introduced the, uh, uh, the, us to the concept. It was at my grandmother's farm. He cut a divining rod for each one of us from my grandmother's plum tree and showed us how to use it. I felt I actually felt the branches turn in my hand, leaving burn marks on my palm, as, uh, regardless of how tightly I gripped it. Whenever I walked over one of those underground streams that uh, traversed my uh, grandmother's property, my younger siblings had no such luck. They tromped all over that property, up one side, down the other, and it, that, that rod just kept pointing straight up into the sky. Okay, and by the time it was the, the day was done, they were, came back exhausted and and frustrated, and threw the stick down and gave up, never tested again. But I I can't. I know it sounds like it's mysticism or witchcraft. It's not. It's just some kind of science we just don't understand yet. But what happened? It really does turn in your hands. It really does. And I could not have, I could not have stopped it from turning even if I tried to. Um, uh, I haven't tested it, though, in years. So I, I don't know if I still have it or not. Uh, but from what I've experienced as a firsthand, as a pre-adolescent, I cannot deny its reality. Rather, it is one of the most strong, few strong memories that I do have from childhood. Wells were, now, the problem is there's a lot of people with, uh, that were charlatans out there who actually used that and abused that and said, okay, I can find water for you. And they take this divining rod and go out and find, point to some place. And they dig the well, dig the hole in the ground, and it come up dry. As a result, so there were charlatans out there who would take advantage of this as well. Um, wells were so important in Scripture that the more reliable ones of them were even given names. For example, when Hagar escapes into the wilderness, the angel of the Lord finds her beside a fountain, which is so prominent and reliable that it was named Berlach. It means the the well of the living one, my seer or my beholder. Genesis 16, 6 through 7. We'll see, the, relate to this. Um, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your slave woman is in your hand. Do to her as it pleases you. And Sarah dealt harshly with her. She fled, it, she fled from her faith. And the angel of Jehovah found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. If we skip down now to verse 13, uh, six, Genesis 16, 13, then we uh, see that is what its name is. And she called the name of Jehovah who had spoken to her, You are a God of visions. For she said, Even here have I looked after him that sees me. Therefore the well was called the well of the living one seeing me. And behold, the well of the living one seeing me. Behold, it is between Kadesh and uh, Barad. Okay, so this is, this is one of the wells. There are several wells that we find in Scripture. Uh, this, was, this is one of them. We also know the, the, the well of Sheba. We know uh, the well of Bethlehem. We know Jacob's well. There are several wells that have prominent names because they were so reliable and did not run dry. Um, interesting, this is the same well near which Isaac lived. Did you know that Isaac lived near this well? Here's something else I found out in doing my research uh, study on this one. Isaac and Ishmael lived in the same region of the country all their life. And at the end, they ended up burying the father Abraham together. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Anyway, so... Um, 
And in the process that we found out they both live by this well, and it's the same well that we see here that Hagar was uh, found by. It's the, the well of the, the well of the living one, my beholder. We know, but if you think about it, we really don't know a whole lot about Isaac. We know a lot about Abraham, his father. We know a lot about Jacob, his, uh, his son. But we don't know all that much about Isaac. Really, what we know about Isaac is that he was a, an obedient son, obedient to the point of near sacrifice from Abraham. We know that he um, uh, uh, he married uh, Rachel, uh, and we know that uh, he... Um, it, and we know that he's associated with wells. That's about it. That's a, that we don't know a whole lot about uh, Isaac, but it's, no, it's interesting that Isaac is one of the two most successful well diggers that are ever mentioned in the Bible. King Solomon was the other. King Solomon, with all his resources and materials, uh, built many, many wells and uh, were successful. But Isaac was also very successful. Uh, he lived, as I said, he lived by the well of the living one, the beholder. We can find that verified in Genesis 24:62. Genesis 24, 62, Isaac came from the way of the well, the well of the living one, my beholder, for he lived in the south country. Uh, and again, verified in Genesis 25, 11, and after the death of Abraham, it happened that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by the well of the living one, my beholder. That's the name of the well. It's a long name. But, um, let's see. Okay, uh, if we want to see that how, how very, very good Isaac was at digging wells, uh, turn to Genesis 26, verses 19 through 25, a longer passage here. Isaac's servants uh, dug in the valley, and there they found a well of flowing water. And the herdsmen of Gerar, Gerar uh, strove with Isaac's herdsmen, this water is ours. And he called the name of the well contention because they strove with him. And they dug another well and they strove for that also. And they called it the name of that one opposition. Notice he's digging well after well after well and finding water. They're successful wells. Uh, and he moved from there and he dug another well. And they did not strive for that one. And he called the name of it broad places. And he for now Jehovah has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went from there into Beersheba, and Jeho uh, Jehovah appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not fear, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar there and called, a, called the name of Jehovah and pitched the tent. Isaac's servants dug a well there. Skip down now to verse 32. And the same day that it happened, Isaac's servants came and told about, uh, told about the well which they had dug. And they said that we have found water. And he called it Sheba. For uh, therefore the name of the city is the well of Sheba to this day. Do you realize what's happened here? In a very short span of time, Isaac dug four successful wells in a desert land. Where the surface, there's no indicator of water anywhere. It's dry. It's barren. It's dusty. It's rock. How do you dig wells? How do you find water in a place like that? 
they must have been using some kind of water science in order to do that. Okay, we know from our atonement experiences the importance of water, but in a desert climate, wells are more than a commodity. They are a source of salvation. Our very existence depends upon them. However, it took the prophet Isaiah, of course, the gospel of the Old Testament, it took the prophet of Isaiah to make the metaphoric connection between water and salvation. Turn to Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. Notice he identifies God with salvation. This is Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. Okay? God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And with joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. He has identified God with the salvation identified the wells of salvation here as a source of this inspiration of this water. Here Isaiah draws the formal link between God and water. Just as water is essential for us to sustain physical lives, drinking in God is necessary for our spiritual salvation. Jesus identifies himself as living water, as a well springing up into everlasting life. Turn to John uh, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 14. This is uh, this, the famous scene of him meeting with the woman of Samaria at the well. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus upon the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, sixth hour would be about right at noon. Okay. The woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews do not associate with the Samarians. And Jesus said unto her, If you know the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked of him, he would, that he would have give you that he that he would have given you living water. And the woman uh, said to him, "Sir, you have no vessel, and the well is deep. From when, uh, where do you have that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his children and his cattle also?" And Jesus answered and said unto her, "Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again." But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well, spring, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So, what do we see? We see Isaiah back in, uh, in the Old Testament foreshadowing the idea that Jesus is the well of salvation. And from which we can draw out this spring of living water. Anyone thirsty?